Grief is it's a very strange thing. It's very strange. One can wake up in the morning feeling like I think I can today's going to be okay. This happened to me just the other day. I, I was feeling fine upstairs, getting ready. And when I walked to the top of the stairs, I was okay by the bottom of the stairs. It's a short staircase. I was weeping. Um, it's very, very strange. It can just jump you when you least expect it. Something will happen. Easy to give money away, but it's not easy to give money away well. And when you're dealing with um, uh, an organisation that has Her Majesty the Queen's name on it, it's got to be right. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Nicola Brentnell, a very warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, really good to have you on. Um, you are the CEO of Aja. What do they do? What's their mission and what's their vision? Well, ajars.org is um, really a group of friends. It's not a foundation. It's not a charity. It's uh, a group of friends who've come together to help a philanthropist give money to organizations in the UK that are supporting families and children in the moments that matter, moments of crisis. It might be grief. It might be a lack of money. It might be loneliness and isolation. And we started doing this work uh, back in August, and it's we give grants, and we also offer, if the charities want to want uh, want this, a little bit of added value in the form of governance support. I'm helping with, for example, chairs appraisals. I'm helping with a board effectiveness and governance review, and also brand and communications matters. Because the the uh, uh, Ajaz is Ajaz Ahmed. He's the founder of an organisation called AKQA, which is a, a brand innovation communications agency uh, with studios worldwide. And uh, his colleague um, Sam Kelly, who is the chief marketing officer, is also available to offer support on communications, branding, new ideas in in communications for charities. Um, we Wonderful. try and keep everything as light touch as we can because we know how challenging it is to run small organizations and raise money and uh, keep the show on the road. So we're there in support and uh, it's been fascinating. I've met some exceptional people in the time that I've been doing this work um, and people all driven by a sense of purpose to help others, whether it's children, whether it's lonely elders, whether it's people struggling to to find um kit that they need for their children it's a it's a, a real privilege to be able to walk alongside and help where we can fabulous and you're well uh well you're very experienced of dealing with successful people uh and helping them give well uh and and help people uh, on the margins and in need um what are the key differences you know, dealing with successful people when it comes to their charitable giving, do, do you think they approach giving differently? I think everyone's got their own way of giving. People have their own priorities. They have their own motivations, rationale for giving, what they want to see, what good looks like. Everyone's different when it comes to, to giving. There is no one right way. Um, for me, it was spending time with Ajars and trying to understand what it is he wants, he really wants to do here. And it's very, very simple. It's just being helpful. It's not 
um, something that's sort of very highfalutin. It's just here are charities, proven work, great teams, great cause, enormous need. How can I help? What can I do that's most useful? Um, but there will be others who come at it from a very, very different angle. And there's, there's room for all kinds of giving because the need in the world, as we know, particularly now, is uh, enormous. So the more people coming onto the pitch and giving small amounts of money or large, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. It's the motive to try and, and work with specialists who know what they're doing, ideally with unrestricted funding, and just let them get on with what they're doing. And you've been doing this sort of work for three decades. Um, what drove you to chase it in the first place? Well, it's interesting. I think because I come from a background of a family that um, that uh, my parents got divorced. There was very little money, uh, a lot of a lot of struggle um, in my childhood and home life. Um, so I sort of come to it from an understanding of what it's like to be on the margins, what it's like to be the quiet child at the back of the room of the class who doesn't really want to be seen. I sort of have that sort of empathy with people going through difficult times. And I had the opportunity to join an organization called the Prince's Trust way, way back in 1997. And an organization, as you know, that supports young people with the training, development and employment opportunities for, for young people who've really struggled in life and had a, been dealt a really difficult hand. And I was able to find, I don't know how to put this, sort of find my tribe there. There were young people whose experiences I could recognize because I'd walked some of them myself. So for me, it was personal. There's this expression going around called lived experience. For me, it was personal. I know what that was like. And I know what it was like to find someone who believed in me when I was young and growing up and how, how significant that was. And seeing the Prince's Trust reaching out and supporting thousands of young people over the, um, over any, any one year made me think this is where I need to be. This is where I can use the skill and experience that I've got in my case, it was of all things governance and um, administration to work and support an organization that was doing really fundamentally important things, touching and changing lives and helping young people take a, the next step into a much brighter future. So that's where it really yeah. came from. And um, working in the Prince's Trust, it was uh, running programs. And then from there, I went to be on the grant making side at first of all the Prince of Wales Charitable Foundation and then an organization called the Queen's Trust. I think with the Prince's Trust, it's very unique. There's a sense of, um, I think, sort of a sprinkle of stardust that the Prince and also the Prince's Trust gives to young people's outlook or life. And, you know, sometimes young people have been on the real margins of society going through a really tough time, and here they are achieving something with their lives with that sort of sprinkle of stardust from the prince. And, and it is a unique organization like that. There was a real, I think young people are inspired by its, by its sort of almost like showbiz um, royalty, you know, stamp of approval. I think that's right. I think that's right. And um, uh, young people will write to the Prince of Wales a lot to thank him. Um, for what he's done for them. They, they see that very personally, and he will write back to them as well, personally, to, to, to those who write in. But I think at the heart of it is about young, respect for young people, a belief in their ability and their talents to do all kinds of extraordinary things. And the fact that these young people get out of bed in the morning is a, is a demonstration of their resilience and their grit and their guts. 
So at the heart of the Prince's Trust, it's how can we, how can we help? How can we support you in your development? What opportunities can we give? When young people knock on the door of the Prince's Trust, the question the Prince's Trust will ask is, how can I help you? Um, that's at the heart of it. And over the top, obviously, the, the, the Prince's endorsement, the Prince Wells endorsement and belief in them. It's that magical combination of, of commitment, tried and tested programs that really work. And that's, as you say, sprinkle of stardust. It's, it's a magical combination there. And he's a really good guy, isn't he? I've, um, I've met him. Uh, he is very human. He believes in young people, has a real affinity with young people, and he can communicate with them. Absolutely. I was in my, my time with the organization. I saw him with young people on many occasions and he was at ease with them, put them at their ease. There was always a lot of laughter, but also a very genuine interest from his, uh, from his point of view in them and what they were doing and how was the program working for them? What more could we do? A constant restlessness for better all the time coming from the top in that organization. How can we be smarter? How can we help more people? How can we improve? How can we learn? How can we grow? How can we do more? It was really quite remarkable to see that, that level of real genuine commitment in the organization. You've been in and around the royal family and their charitable activities for a number of years. So after the Princess Trust, they, they trusted you to carry forward some more work for them? Yes, I had the most extraordinary opportunity. Talk about being in the in the right place at the right time. Um, the Queen's Silver Jubilee Trust, as it was then, was uh, uh, running, giving small amounts of money um, away, bits and pieces, supported the Prince's Trust for a long time, and the trustees decided to spend out. It had about £35 million left. It was money raised in one fundraising year in 1977, and its purpose had been to help young people help others. So it's all about giving funding to charities that enabled young people to serve others around them and benefit themselves at the same time. And uh, they needed someone to run that spend out. So I was asked by the chairman, Sir Alan Reid, um, whether I would be interested in doing that, coming and having an office in Buckingham Palace and giving away £35 million to youth charities. It was a very short interview. It was like that question, <laughs> and would you, you know, there'll be some international travel, you know, would, would you like to do this? And it was like in a, in a heartbeat, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm so glad I did that because it was an opportunity again to connect with exceptional organisations working tirelessly in the support of the development of um, children and young people um, and enabling them to take the next step. And I came across organizations like CAMFED. Um, I came across organizations like Teenage Cancer Trust, uh, continuing to support the Prince's Trust, helping their uh, push out to, to do more in Wales. Um, organizations like Interuniversity, Frontline, the social work charity, we were behind them. Um, so a, a rich variety of uh, youth organisations and enabling them with substantial grants over the, the duration of the spend out, which was about five years, to take a service or a programme that they ran or the, the whole organisation and enabling them to move forward. And uh, I look back on that work with an enormous sense of satisfaction and pride in the organisations that we work with and what they're doing. And looking at um, the where unique... they are now and that the programs that we invested in to help them bring back to life or to continue are thriving. And that's really, really satisfying. And it's all down to them. Yeah. 
Queen's Trust was just able to come in with with funding that they could rely on over that period. And uh, it was it was great fun to do it. And what was the unique pressures of a spend out? Did you feel the pressure? Yes, because it's um, easy to give money away, but it's not easy to give money away well. And when you're dealing with um, uh, an organization that has Her Majesty the Queen's name on it, it's got to be right. And so due diligence has to be very thorough. And building trusted relationships with the organizations we were funding was very, very important to make sure that we were responsive to them, understanding of the pressures that they were facing, but also keeping an eye all the time on on reputation and making sure that we stayed on the right side of, uh, of what we were doing and just making sure that the organizations that we chose were able to use that money really productively. As I, I touched on a moment ago, what those organizations that could take it and make great things happen with it. Because once it's gone, it's gone. Once it's spent, that's it. There isn't any more. And the organization obviously spent out and, and closed. So it's about reputation. It's about choice. It's about relationships. It's about support. And uh, it's about hopefully bringing some of that stardust to organizations. One of the biggest successes I think that we had was with Onside Youth Zones, and we were able to help that movement um, develop. And, and you and I worked together, um, um, Mark, on, on that expansion program. Yeah. And Youth Zones are now opening up all over the country, which is really wonderful. And Queen's Trust was able to play a, a big role in keeping the momentum going there. Um, so we can look back at that and think, wow, you know, we enabled some of that to happen through the funding support and getting behind the teams of experts who were running those organizations with financial support that they could rely on. Because when you're doing your due diligence, when you're assessing a project, do you, do you put a lot on the person and the people that are behind the organization that you're looking to invest in? Is, is that often the, the sort of the people that are the most important piece and, and really believing in them? Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's like any investment. You're investing in the team, the way that they present, the way they understand, the way that they prepare, the attention to detail in really important matters that may not immediately sort of stand out as what we're looking at, like safeguarding culture, for example, how they care for the, the for, for the young people that they are supporting, but also their staff, the culture of the organization it all comes from the top. Why are they doing this? What is the point of it? How well researched are they? What evidence have they got to, to prove the worth and value, the need, worth and value of what they're doing and the personalities of the people who are in charge? And it was such a privilege, uh, Mark, to be able to do it because I met some exceptional leaders, people who go into this work, do it often at a, at a high price because it's stressful and demanding and difficult. Um, and long hours and uh, demanding circumstances and often a high wire act financially, um, raising money and being sure and certain to be able to keep the show running and choosing those that were really very smart in the way that they went about doing it. And the, their own humanity really comes through. Uh, the time that I spent with the leaders of those organizations, I learned a huge amount about how to lead, how to be, how to be a, um, a good chief executive. I learned a lot from them. I was very, very lucky to work with the people that I did in the time that I was there. And do you think, look back and think of any um, times that you, you know, were involved in funding, something that didn't quite meet up 
expectations or may have been deemed as some form of failure? Yeah, I, it's interesting, isn't it? I always used to say there's, there's no failure, there's only learning. There was one organization that we gave uh, funding for um, impact measurement study to be done. And we went into it. They had a particular ambition for it. And um, unfortunately, it just didn't quite turn out the way that we had wanted it to turn out from, from their perspective. But they were really really smart in that they kept us informed all the way through. As things didn't quite go according to plan, we knew every step of the way what was going on, how things were slightly changing, how the scope was different and why. The output was a, a reasonable report, but not quite the one that we had hoped to see, or they, most importantly, they had hoped to see. But they always were with us and kept us, as I said, very closely informed. It's when there is a sense from organizations who have taken a donor's money to do something and it goes wrong and they don't want to disclose and you find out another way, that's when there can be some problems. Um, but this organization with this research report kept us in the loop all the way through. And the report that we had, as I said, wasn't quite the one that we had hoped for, but it had value. It just wasn't quite uh, wasn't quite what we set out to fund. Yeah. And I learned a lot in that process and they learned a lot in that process. So there was value ultimately in it. And so after the Queen's Trust, you were effectively founded the Queen's Commonwealth Trust. Tell us a bit about that. Oh, the Queen's Commonwealth Trust. Yes. Just as I, just as I'd spent um, 35 million pounds uh, and I thought that was it. And I was sort of um, turning the lights out in my office in Buckingham Palace. I was asked to start up Another organization in the Queen's name in recognition of her lifetime belief in young people in the Commonwealth. And I was just given the name. We'll call it um, the Queen's Commonwealth Trust. I was asked to do it by the then private secretary to the Queen. We'll call it the Queen's Commonwealth Trust, he said. Off you go, make it happen. So with, with no money in the bank at all um, and... Uh, um, just a, a, a little corner office in um, um, Buckingham Palace at the time. We'd subsequently moved out um, when all the refurbishments started. Um, I set up the Queen's Commonwealth Trust, and this was about recognising young people who are social entrepreneurs, who are working or running their own charities, working locally around the world to bring a benefit to their community because they understand what's needed. They understand best how things should be done. So funding grassroots organizations, funding young people who have set up and have been running these little organizations for a while. And I raised money for it. I um, worked with Ajaz Ahmed, who I'm now working for again with his philanthropy, on the brand, on the website, on the, um, the, the social media strategy, the tone of voice for the organization, recruited the first team and made the first grants and had the opportunity to to travel, to meet um, some of the young people and what they were doing and, and, and visiting their work in Rwanda, in South Africa, in Malawi, in Zambia. We, we started our focus and originally was in Africa and hence all of those African countries and seeing exceptional work from young people really driven by a desire to step up and help people in their communities, whether it's tackling gender-based violence or food scarcity or access to education. 
or dealing with the scourge of plastic waste and unemployment and seeing these smart solutions that the young people would come up with or access to justice um, in prisons in, uh, in Uganda and Kenya. And really, really struck by the talent and the drive and the ability and the possibilities that these young people were bringing each and every day to people who needed a helping hand. Wonderful. We um, set up a network of young, of like-minded young people at Queen's Commonwealth Trust that is continuing. I think they've got 850 young people in that network now. And it was five years of sort of hard work and enormous reward in the sense of seeing great work in action, learning a lot from the young people that we were supporting and uh, working through, obviously, 2020. That was a very difficult year for us. Uh, fundraising was very difficult. I'm just being struck by the young people who are often working in very difficult circumstances, powering through the, the, um, the demands that the pandemic placed on their shoulders, pivoting their business models, making things happen, not giving up. And it was a real inspiration to me in that year to keep going, follow them, learn from them, um, draw on uh, their strength. Um, so it really became an equal partnership. Um, that's what we wanted. Uh, the vision of the Queen's Commonwealth Trust is a world where young people are equal partners and driving change. It absolutely was that. And I learned such a lot from them. Fantastic. And so organization endures, but you decided to step up, step off? That's right. That's right. I'd done five years and I sort of have a belief that um, when you've done five years, you've probably you know, done some of your best work and it's time to, to have a change. Um, and also at the same time, um, my dear husband was becoming very unwell. Unfortunately, he had a, a diagnosis of blood cancer and he died from that in January. So last year was a very intense year and I needed to step away to be with him. Um, uh, I said farewell to the organization and it's steamed off and is doing very well. And I've got huge respect for, for the team that's there working very, very hard in support of the young people. Um, so I sort of stepped back and, um, retired to be with Tom and, um, and then had a call with my friend, Charles, who said that uh, he was feeling a little bit down. And I asked why. And he said, because I'm not giving away. I'm not my philanthropist stalling. I'm not giving away as much as I would want. And as a throwaway line, I said, oh, well, hire me. I'll help you. And so a couple of days a week, I'm now um, helping Ajaz with uh, his giving. And it's uh, it's he, it's uh, Jars, me and uh, and Sam Kelly working together to do this. And it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And again, another opportunity to to, to work with exceptional leaders in organizations, this time based in the UK, who are um, working in support of children and families going through difficult times. And Tom, he wasn't involved in your sector. He, he, did, he did other things. My husband, Tom, yes, he had his own, his own business. He was an angel investor. So he had lots of interests in all kinds of companies. He supported me with the Queen's Commonwealth Trust and traveled at his own expense to see the young people in action and really admired them. As an entrepreneur, he saw their their drive and their interest in social purpose and had an enormous respect, in respect for them. So, but unfortunately, last year was very, very, very difficult for him and I, and, um, yeah. and he had to gradually step back uh, from running his businesses and his business interests. How did Tom deal with his, his news, his diagnosis? Was he a positive person? 
Tom was the most positive person I've ever come across. He accepted the diagnosis with great stoicism and grace, and we agreed a strategy of how we were going to deal with it, Mark. And it went something like this, you know, it is what it is. The situation just is. There's no point in being angry or bitter or regretful. We just have to deal with the situation as it is. We agreed that we were going to show up well for each other, particularly, and for those who were supporting us. And we chose as best we could to be brave and keep going. And that strategy of dealing with it really came from Tom. And I was in awe of him. He went into hospital in August last year and didn't come home. Uh, he tried chemotherapy for the blood cancer, but unfortunately, he's, he was so unwell. He, so he did one round and it, and it put him into a very difficult situation. People with blood cancer or experience it will understand what I mean. Um, he was never going to, he was never going to survive. Um, but he had this enormous will to live, Mark. He wanted to be with us. It wasn't fighting cancer. That wasn't the right way of putting it. He wanted to be with us and us meaning me, his brother, his nieces, his friends, wider, um, wider extended family. Um, and he did his very best to stay with us. Mm. But unfortunately, it just became, it, it was just overwhelming. But I learned a great deal from him on how to approach the worst possible news how to deal with losing mobility, how to deal with ultimately losing cognitive um, ability, and to do that with calm and to do that with strength and to do that with generosity and grace. And I hope that if that news comes to me, and who knows, cancer is, I think, one in two people get it if it comes to me, and I would want to look back on how Tom dealt with it, Mark, and try and do the same thing myself. I bet it's been incredibly tough and decision to get back to work has, has not been easy, but also I imagine it's given you a real lift um, to get to get back into your what you're good at. Well, I kind of sort of stumble along and try and do my best as, as most of us do, but has been a great joy to come back because I'm working alongside people who care very deeply. And I have been really really delighted and touched and moved by the love and support that I've had throughout Tom's illness from young people around the world, young people who met him when he traveled with me, young people who knew of him through me, supportive messages, cards. I've had people sent flowers and messages um, from um, past jobs and now with um, the, the organizations in ajars.org. So coming back has been like coming back, it's like I never left in a way. They walked alongside me and picking up again, because I did obviously have a period when I wasn't doing anything and we just stopped. Um, the grants had been made and the organizations were you know, running. They didn't need me to be visible all the time. Coming back has been really a helpful distraction and I've just been enveloped in this love and care. So I'm very, very fortunate to, to do the job that I do and particularly um, the support and love that I have had from Ajaz particularly, he's been remarkable and kind and, and helping me and the organizations too. So it's been easier for me coming back than I know from the um, bereavement forums that I'm on than it is for other people having to go back into work. So I've been lucky in that sense. Yeah. And grief is a, has a way of dumping on your ass some days and really giving you a, a, some tough days. How do you, how have you deal with those tough days? 
Grief is it's a very strange thing. It's very strange. One can wake up in the morning feeling like I think I can today's going to be okay. This happened to me just the other day. I, I was feeling fine upstairs, getting ready. And when I walked to the top of the stairs, I was okay by the bottom of the stairs. It's a short staircase. I was weeping. Um, it's very, very strange. It can just jump you when you least expect it. Something will happen. Someone will say something or you remember an exchange or I remember an exchange with, that I had with, with Tom, good times. Or suddenly, like yesterday, a, a newsletter came from the hospice where he died and I opened the envelope and on the front cover of, of the newsletter was a photograph of one of the people who were there when Tom was there and he had subsequently died. And it just knocks you back for a moment. It's very tough. It's a, grief is a, it's a horrible place to be. And uh, I know that from the forums that I'm on, many people feel exactly the same way as I do sometimes. Not lonely necessarily, but alone. And a future that Tom and I had planned together gone. And how to deal with coming back to a new life. And who am I going to be now? And what am I going to stand for? And how am I going to to face these next years without the, you know, frankly, to you know, with our listeners, the love of my life? And trying to see it through a lens of, I was so lucky to be loved like that. I was so lucky to have him in my life. So many people go through life without that. And I had eight wonderful years with him. And I try and look at it like that. Not what I've lost, but my goodness, what I had. Yeah. And how wonderful was that? And how can I honor him in now going forward into my new life, drawing on his values, his strength, his worldview, and doing the best that I can in the opportunities that I have with the jars to help other people and to be there for them. Wonderful. And you, not only in your day jobs, but actually um, in your spare time, you've, you've been involved in a number of charities over the years, and, and you're continuing that sort of voluntary work on boards that's still a big part of your life as well, isn't it? It is, yes. I mean, I had a little bit of a break from um, from them um, through Tom's final illness, but I'm very, very proud to be part of an organisation, a trustee of an organisation called DFN Project Search, which is an organisation that helps young people with learning disabilities and autism get into paid employment. An enormous potential uh, workforce out there of young people who are keen to work, desperate to, to work and have a chance to be included. And DFN Project Search is making that happen and is really at a tipping point of enormous success and helping many, many, many more young people do that. I've become a trustee of a new grant making foundation that's yet to start, but will be starting very soon. Um, looking forward to that. And I've become, just become a governor to the children's charity Quorum. I'll be joining their campaign committee to help raise money to further extend the campus there in Bloomsbury. Isn't the world's oldest charity? Yes, the world's oldest children's charity. That's right. Um, and uh, it's led by a, a, a real force of nature for children, Dr. Carol Hondon. She's remarkable. And what she has achieved there over the past, she must have been there about 13 years now, is really extraordinary. And she has this uh, and she's part of the Ajars family as well. She has this laser focus on doing the best possible job for children who need it, who need support. And she's never lost sight, the line of sight to the individual child and how important it is for, for, for children to be 
in safe homes to be um, how to have the support around them, the therapeutic support that they may need, access to justice, access to legal advice, all of these things through the various charities that Coram has on its campus. It's Carol that's driving that through with a very, very talented uh, team of people around her. I'm hugely honoured to have been asked to become a governor and very much look forward to, to getting started with that in June. Do you think the future is bright for children and young people? That The world seems tough right now, but do you have hope for children and young people in the future? Oh, golly, it's a, it's a big question. I do, I do, um, because the the young people that I have encountered in my time, in the as you said, you know, across three decades, all of them who've faced great difficulty in a whole variety of different circumstances, all of them have shared the same characteristic mark, and that is a desire to help other people around them in a whole variety of different ways. And so that, and in, in different cultures and different contexts all around the world, that same thing. What can I do to help other people? How can I do my bit? So I see even looking out at the world as it is now, that there are millions of young people who say, we're going to stand up for something better. We see them taking enormous risks, both on the, in, in the streets um, in Ukraine, but also in, in Russia, protesting in whatever way they can to get the message across of huge personal danger that this all needs to stop because they care and they want to do the right thing. So even in these dark days, I do see hope because there is this generosity of love and desire to, to see the world being better. And it comes from, um, from our young people yeah. and, uh, and what they want to do. Even with a tiny amount to hand, they will give to help somebody else. Wonderful. Well, I wish you all the best with your work and thank you very much for joining me on Purposely. Much appreciated. Thank you. listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.